This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Isn't it bullshit to have to question where your food comes from? At Vital Farms, you can trace your pasture-raised eggs all the way back to the source, the pasture. On the side of each pasture-raised carton of eggs, you'll find the name of the farm where your eggs were laid. And when you look the farm up on their website, you'll get a peek at all the sunshine, fresh air, and open space the hens enjoy. Learn more and find out where to buy them at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Welcome to the HCI family of podcasts, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We share our own original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. Join us for practitioner-oriented content around all things leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with the HCI family of podcasts. Welcome to the podcast. In this podcast episode, I talk with Joe Sheppy about embracing failure and creating psychological safety. Joe Sheppy, welcome to the conversation today. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be with you. You're joining us from the Minneapolis area. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about embracing failure and creating psychological safety at work. I think that's such an important topic. It's one I'm quite passionate about. I'm really thrilled to have a chance to chat with you and, and explore your experiences at your company around this topic. As we get started, I wanted to share Joe's bio with everybody. Joe Sheppy is a visionary in human cognition who wants to fundamentally change the way brands and audiences connect. As the CEO and founder of Solston, an AI-powered tool for human-centric experiences, Joe is pioneering the use of video game for cognitive assessment, opening up new possibilities for not only the gaming industry, but for mental health diagnostics and treatment. And I could go on, Joe, but I'm going to pause there. Anything in particular you would like to highlight by way of your background, personal context, or your company before we dive on in? Um, maybe just that this has all been a part of my life's, my life's journey. Um, really from early on was focused on how do we elevate human awareness? How do we do that? Mm. Um, and it comes from, we have to be able to measure these things. So, um, started out working in hospitals, wanted to be a doctor, realized that about half the patients in ERs, um, have mental health things going on which of Mm -hmm. seven of eight of those in the United States basically go misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. So Mm -hmm. huge challenge um, and went into the world of UX because I was asking myself, well, how can we build experiences? How can we architect things in a way that maybe it feels like a small town in Italy where there's lots of human connection versus a Mm -hmm. gridded um, city in, I don't know, the United States, which is built around efficiency and cars, but not really around human beings. Um, Mm -hmm. So went that direction and realized that it was time to go back to clinical psychology. So actually, when I was where I was in Salt Lake City at McCann there, and um, interned with a woman named Dr. Sugarman, who's one of the top neuropsychologists in the US, she's based in Salt Lake, um, but started seeing patients doing neuropsyche evals to figure out how we can measure this stuff and really stumbled upon on well, stumble, but play, and how sure. well play 
is is positioned to really understand human psychology and not just understand ourselves, but also evolve who we are. Um, I think it takes like about 500 repetitions of a thing um, from a cognitive perspective to mm-hmm. be able to change mm-hmm. a synapse. But when you're in a state of play, it's like only 10 times. So interesting. Worked as an adventure-based psychotherapist, did a lot of psych evals, and founded Solson about six years ago. So we work with all the major companies in gaming from Activision to EA to a lot of young, growing companies, but helping them understand their their audiences. And we're at the literal frontier of understanding human psychology. So uh, we've, we've been kind of the AI of that for the last six years. That is so cool. Um, you know, I'm in the education space, uh, whether it's cor- in a corporate setting, you know, executive development, training and development and stuff, or in the university setting, uh, which is where I spend most of my time, you know, tra- training students and and uh, uh, preparing them for the workforce. Um, we try to use gamification uh, components quite a bit in a lot of our curriculum. And that's been fun to play with and to explore um, I suppose there's probably some gamification elements in what you're describing, but I think you're describing something a little bit different uh, in terms of utilizing games for that cognitive assessment. Could you describe it perhaps a little bit more? Yeah, so there's a saying um, it's that I really appreciate. And I like it's show me how you play and I'll tell you mm. who you are. Mm. Um, back when I was in Utah, I do adventure-based therapy with people. One of my favorite activities was you get like a couple, um, husband, wife, um, you put them in a canoe, the really tippy kind, (laughs) not the like nice stable kind. And you say, for example, you know, to the husband, you're going to go 45 degrees to the right and then 45 degrees to the left and end up at that spot right there. The wife's not listening to this. And then you go to the wife, you're going to go 45 degrees to the left and 45 degrees to the right and end up at the same spot. So initially they're going opposite directions. Now, in life, about 80% of communication plus is body language. It's not mm-hmm. verbal. So you can both go in the canoe now. Um, you're not allowed to verbally communicate. You can hand signal whatever you want. And I step back. And the tippier the relationship, the tippier the canoe, a lot of couples end up in the water <laughs> yelling at each other. We were supposed to go that way. We were supposed to go that way. And now I'm getting to you know, not be on a couch as a therapist, but I'm getting to observe reality and i'm getting to observe Mm. what they argue they forget that i'm there like i'm not even there anymore Mm -hmm. and and then i'll step in and say hey where were you supposed to end up and usually they both yell and point to the same spot and then there's this kind of look of bewilderment on their faces and you come in and say hey do you ever think there's times in your relationship where you both have different ideas on how to get somewhere and sometimes they're opposite but if you came together and really communicated really understood each other it's just a straight line and, you know, those couples will come back the next week. They're like, oh, my gosh, that solves so many problems for us. You can spend all the time you want on a couch talking through things. It takes a lot of time to change synapses and how they associate with each other. Mm-hmm. And when we play, our most authentic version of ourselves come out. So our, our masks, like they're called our histrionics, they go away. Um, this authenticity comes out. It's part of the reason why. There's no Mark Mark Zuckerberg out there measuring your psychology from what you do on Instagram. It's just not authentic enough behavior. But in games, you get this really authentic behavior. Their base gets destroyed and they rebuild it really quickly. That could be predictive of how resilient that person is, which has a lot yeah. to do with psychological safety of a community. Um, 
higher levels of resilience equals safer communities. And so, and games want safer communities. And there's 3 billion people in the world that play games every day. Only 4 billion people have smart devices. So you can kind of do the math in terms of human beings were geared towards play. Um, you know, there's there's some research showing that around the age of 30, our crystal memory continues to go up, but our fluid memory goes down. Games offer that thing that medically speaking in the past, you know, we would just give these questionnaires or what we call assessments um, where we're assessing things like depression, anxiety, et cetera. And then the patient goes away and, you know, weeks go by, stuff happens. So with games, there's that real time loop. And that's one of the challenges with a lot of times um, companies will come to us and say, we want to do gamification. And the reason why Solston works with real game companies is it is very, very, very hard to make a fun game. And that's all games are, is is play with rules. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people say, well, we're going to gamify it. And I said, do you have to give people reminders? So a lot of the medical industry, for example, will gamify certain things or think that they're doing that. And they still have to remind people and send push notifications to get people back into things like digital therapeutics. And it's like, well, it's not a game. It's not fun. Just because Mm -hmm. you have game elements doesn't make it a game game is supposed to be fun game is supposed to have play so that's where solston works with basically um some of the biggest games out there uh so when people are playing these games we're anonymously understanding individuals um on about 300 different psychological facets and then we're Mm. seeing we measure also things like addiction depression sleep quality Mm. so we're Mm. making sure that these games are impacting users in a way that's sustainable and regenerative um, the idea being is how do you walk away from technology feeling like, wow, I got more from that experience than it took from me. So that's a key focus. And then those measurements, like we can measure things like anxiety at 97% accuracy in certain games, where like some of the best clinical assessments in the world can only do that at 85% accuracy. Mm-hmm. So we're already beyond what you would get at the the doctor. And that's part of what we're doing is we're advancing the ability to measure and then adapt environments so that they're more sustainable for human beings. That is so cool. I love learning more about this and I couldn't help, but just relate to and deeply resonate with your story about the canoe. So my wife and I uh, were in Costa Rica this past May. Um, We weren't doing like a couples therapy canoe thing. Like it sounds like you were describing where that was the sole purpose. We were just doing a a canoe um, tour. Right. And we were going through, um, these really tight spots. Um, I, I, I'm trying to remember what the, the name of the trees were anyways. It was a beautiful, it was a lot of fun. We were in one of those dual, you know, very small dual canoes, very rocky. Right. And the tour guide, he mentioned, he's like, so just so you know, people often do better when they're in individual canoes. Uh, if you're together, it's really going to test your marriage. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and I, I just thought that was so funny and, and we did it and we didn't fall in. And I think we did pretty well, but it was challenging for sure. Like we just had different ways of doing it and we had different kind of approaches and styles and, and uh, it, it was frustrating, right? Because we just weren't always on the same page. So Mm -hmm. anyways, it deeply resonated with that experience. And I think we learned a lot from doing that, even though that wasn't the purpose of going on this uh, canoe tour. Um, And, and just hearing you talk about how you can use gaming to measure all these different psychological processes. I think that's super fascinating. It's just a reminder that we live in a world full of data that's being collected constantly. And we need to better understand how to utilize the existing and available data in ways that can help us do things better, uh, to function better, to be more healthy 
all of those things. I think that's super important, super cool to hear about what you're doing at Solston. All right, I want to shift now and talk a little bit about the culture there at Solston um, around this idea of psychological safety. So as I introduced the topic for today, embracing failure, creating psychological safety, you know, people might think, why in the world would you want to embrace failure? Why in the world would we want to... Uh, uh, an environment where people feel like it's okay to fail. We want success. We want um, people to only do, you know, successful things. Um, how would you respond to someone, a leader who, who, who takes that kind of an approach? Yes. Why is failure helpful? How can it be helpful? Why do we want to embrace failure? And then we can start to connect that to the psychological safety piece. Yeah. And I, I actually, I think that you can't speak with one without the other. You can't really be in an environment where you can fail well um, without without having components of psychological safety. And one of the challenges, I, th I think, especially building a company, is you're you're in a do or die situation. So it's it's very different for large corporates, like if you're Google or Facebook, things like that. Um, this can be architected into the system where a lot of times startups, it's Either either die or you move forward. And so so what we see is people that have high levels of emotional resilience are far more likely to create psychologically safe environments. And a lot mm -hmm. of people, one of the mistakes people make is most of the time that the people that are asking for psychologically psychological safety are the most unsafe people. They're mm -hmm. oftentimes because we measure, we do assessments with our team. They're oftentimes the people that are causing things to be less safe. So if you think of like a little kid that's in trouble. And they're going to go to the safest adult in the room. Mm. They're not going to go to somebody who's kind of weak and meek. Um, they're going to go to somebody who looks stable. If we think of um, some of the most psychologically stable people are actually pilots. If you look at mm. the psychological evaluations of pilots, they're incredible people. Um, there's a reason why our skies are so safe. Let's just put it mm. that way. Um, and, and these pilots have to go through evals every two years. And so when we think of failure, you know, something's only a failure if the person doesn't learn. Yeah. And so culturally, I think it's interesting, like Solston, we're, we're a startup, we're about 70 people, we're, we're growing, um, but we were rated uh, the top 100 companies in the world to work for innovators uh, by Fast Company. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that, I think, is we do have an emphasis on, on psychological assessments, but it's not what everyone is going to think. Like there's literally a book called against empathy that's written by a psychologist. And the point is, how do we, how do we move towards rational compassion? Um, a lot of people mistake empathy for compassion where empathy is just the ability to read somebody's emotions. It's like someone like Donald Trump, not to be political, but he's very good at the empathetic skill of relating to the emotions of his audience and then using those to to create an end for himself um so empathy is really a tool it's it's a cognitive tool but that compassion aspect is actually how do we make things better for the whole and so when we're thinking of the whole of the company you know that means that we need to have values for example that are built around learning so failure for example this is what i tell the team it's only a failure if you didn't learn you know so if we if we make mistakes that's that's okay that's a part of what's here and i think it's normalizing some of these things. So what are the, what are the fabric? What's the fabric of emotional resilience? Cause not everybody has it to start with. And usually the people that don't have it are like, Hey, I have some issues. Um, this person said this thing, this thing happened. And a lot of the skills to actually talk through things with people, like we have about 25 different countries represented at, at Solston. 
And I've had times where people on both ends of the political spectrum from different com- countries, from different religions, from different belief systems, get mad at another person. And this is this the things happen. It's 2023. This is the workplace. And the reality is, is, hey, if we're both going to be rationally compassionate, if we're both going to be able to work through things, we have to be able to understand each other. You don't have to believe what the other person believes, but yeah. you have to be able to reach that common ground. And it's if you take it from a point of learning, you're there to be curious and learn about the other person. And one of the things we talk about internally, too, is this idea of theory of mind. So a lot of people lack theory of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're in a grocery store, they're really angry, something happened, and they're looking around for all the other people that should be angry too. And they're not finding other people that are angry. You know, we tend to place our idea of reality onto all the people around us when in fact, just like the canoe examples that we said earlier, everyone has different realities that are happening. And a lot of people say, I want more diversity. I want more diversity. Well, diversity comes with different realities. And typically mm-hmm. the people that want more more diversity want more diversity, but people who think like them. And so <laughs> that's a big, that's not what we're going for here. You know, we want people that think in different ways that come to things from different perspectives. So I think with failure specifically, it's it's creating a culture where we're, we are on an adventure. Um, I like the, it's like the Shackleton, you know, quote that's like men wanted for a journey, certain failure, um, mm-hmm. you know, compensated if we make it back alive. And I think it, a big part of it from the beginning is setting people up with expecta- clear expectations. Like for in our case, like you're joining a, a startup we're a well-funded startup, but we're still a startup. And so there's certain risks that come with that. Do you want to do that or not? And some people think, yeah, yeah, like that sounds great. Um, but then they come into the company and they realize, oh, this is very different than working at a, a big company. And we assume risks with everything. Like when you work at a very big company, you assume the risk that you're probably not going to have a lot of impact. You're probably not going to work on really interesting things every day. If you get lucky, um, maybe one of your products makes it to market in three years from now, something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's it's it's when you work at a startup, what you use will be used, will be scrutinized, will go into the market. And when people adopt that learning mindset, and I think that's it goes back to the fix versus mastery yeah. type type thing. So we interview for that. We look at do people have a mastery based mindset or a fixed mindset? Because mm-hmm. you if you want to have a culture where failure is okay, and you want to have a culture that's psychologically safe, you have to have people too that have a mastery-based mindset where they're willing to go into whether it's a difficult conversation or whether it's their own failures at the job from a point of learning. And once mm-hmm. we unlock learning, it actually, there is no such thing as failure. And that's what we we kind of have as, as a principle for the company. You're You're only failing if you're not learning. Yeah. Well, and and we should also say like, nobody wants catastrophic failures. I mean, there's failure and then there's failure. So, you know, a lot of times we talk about falling forward, failing fast, um, iterating rapidly. Right. And so in each of those cases, failure is not failure. It's, it's learning, it's growth, it's hypothesizing, it's testing, it's iterating. Right. (laughs) Yep. Yep. But I think a lot of people, a lot of people have, they struggle with even that. You mm-hmm. know, like I had, a, I had an employee that said, this needs to be perfect. Yep, and right. there's a, like a modern saying that comes from like modern psychology. That's not totally accurate, but it's like perfectionism is a trauma response or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a recovering perfectionist is a quote unquote. And and really 
you know, trauma is a whole, real trauma is a whole different thing, clinically speaking. But mm -hmm. when we do look at people that tend to be perfectionists, they are guarding insecurities is what's happening. Yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. Like even the, hey, we're a culture of failing forward. You will see a lot of people get challenged with that. So when I used to coach UX people um, and some of the past people that some of them work for us still at, at Solston here, um, but I'd say, hey, you know, we need to work on X, Y, Z. And I can tell they're a perfectionist um, by Friday would love to review, you know, some designs, some mock-ups, some tests of what you've done. And then I wouldn't even look at it and I'd crumple it up and throw it in the bin or have them put it in the trash can on their computer. And you watch that, that person. And what we're doing is we're dissolving some of that ego and attachment to that perfectionism. And it's amazing how the creator, once they get unbound from that, how much more they successful they become in their mm -hmm. job. And I was talking with um, Devin, who's an employee at Solson. She's our UX lead. And we were just, she's like, that was so painful, like eight years ago, going through that. And it's a lot of times when people are, you know, more junior in their career and haven't gone to that destruction rebirth sort of process in terms of creation that I think they get caught up in the the failure cycle. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's that, but I don't think it's, I don't think many companies are actually good at it. I don't think a lot of people are good at, we know we can all agree on, yeah, like let's fail forward, but a lot of people in terms of implementing it and the efficiencies and then educating on the learnings, especially that part um, we see organizationally because we work with a lot of different companies. I mean, we work with like Peloton, we work with all these game studios. And I think when you look at um, company culture, they can agree on a value set, but then it's like, are you good at taking those failures, turning them into learnings and then pushing them across an organization in a way where other people get to take part in those learnings? A lot of companies struggle with that. Yeah. I mean, closing the loop in the first place is really hard and it's something a lot of people just don't do. So the whole mm -hmm. point of embracing failure is it's not failure. If you learn, that means there has to be a feedback loop and there has to be a dissemination loop. Like there has to be mechanisms yes. to share. <laughs> and a lot of, of organizations, a lot of leaders just aren't good at that. Um, I know one of the things you talk about at Solston is, is making failure easy. Um, can you talk to that a little bit more? I mean, this plays back into the the psychological safety piece. How do we yes. make failure easier, especially if people are, let's say, for example, younger in your career, you're trying to prove yourself, you're trying to, you know, establish yourself and your credibility. You know, it's, it's very tempting to only put forward the successes to make you seem brilliant, you know, um, but how, how do you make that failure easier, I guess, and and so people can start to lean into that? Yeah, I think there's there's two parts to that. And this is what's tricky for organizations. One is on the values and principles of the organization. So, you know, when when a person goes out, works on something, and it's a lot easier to do this on the product side of the company than on the growth side of the company. So if you fail, you know, if your if your numbers are not there on the sales side, they're not there. That's that's what it is. Um, and so failure has a different veil, I think, on the growth sides of companies than it does on the product side of companies. Um, but from a value perspective, what we encourage teams to do is we put this we put this on the team leads. We say, sit down with your team, talk about the three to four peak experiences that they've had at the company and the three to four worst experiences that they've had mm -hmm. at the company. Now, create values around those things. So what are the what were the values present during those peak experiences? And what were the values that weren't present 
during the bot the bad experiences so was it being misunderstood was it not feeling uh heard was it something like that well what's the opposite of being misunderstood feeling understood okay mm. do that with your team and now look together at what your value set is as a team because values basically give us guiding pathways for our teams to really grow and be nurtured well and that sets teams up for success and that's where they know this is the kind of crayons that we can play with and colors we can play with and that really allows for um that those sort of risk-taking things to happen and then they know mm -hmm. kind of how things are going to play out based on that and it should be on the teams now easier said than done reality is messy some leads are much better at it than other leads and i think as an executive it's it's our job to go in and then go back and work with those leads it's not to jump in and tell those leads what to do because they're going through that process too. So I think that's right. one. Um, one thing Solston does is we're we're big on assessment. So upfront, when people come to Solston, we look at, well, what are the traits that we see predict successful engineers, for example, at Solston? Like one of them is high levels of straightforwardness. When mm -hmm. we interview for the for these things, it helps the the sort of integration. And we, we actually do psych assessments for these. Um, it helps with integration. And specifically, if we think of things like emotional and psychological resilience, I think a lot of people like the idea of joining a startup. Ooh, I get lots of equity. Ooh, I can take part in the upside. Um, there's all these amazing stories of the first thousand people at Facebook all became millionaires right. and these sort yeah. of things. People like the idea of that. But then the reality of that is either you have to want both two things. You have to look for people with high levels of resilience, full stop, the ability to bounce back from negative situations. And on top of that, you have to have systems that can help create that. So I don't see any world where you can have a company of innovators or builders that build well and succeed well, that don't have that innovation underpinning to that point. Um, God, who is it's there. One of the oldest, um, rubber companies i forget the dupont so oh, yeah. dupont looked back all the way to 1906 and they had been doing different psych assessments with employees since the early 1900s and they found that when people were on the intuitive side and thinking side of things that about 90 percent of those projects went to market and made money where when people were on the judging side and sensing side psychologically um, only 16% of those projects went to market and made money. So the mm -hmm. fabric, there's a Harvard Business Review article that I wrote with my business partner on how to build teams based on psychology. Four of the companies that were in his incubator all went on to become successful. So, and we built those teams based on the psychology of the group. So I'm a huge advocate of just in from the start, looking for people that have high levels of emotional resilience. You can ask people like, Hey, what's the hardest thing you've ever done at work? Um, what's the hardest, what's one of the hardest things that you've, you've had to get through. Um, and they'll share whatever they want to share, but that can give you a pretty good idea of, you know, is this person somebody who can have difficult conversations who can bounce back from negative things. And there's people out there that it's not your job as a company. That's the, that's the therapist job. It's not your job as a company to create an emotionally resilient person. And to be quite honest, it's kind of like as a therapist, because I've been on both sides, um, it's kind of like doing surgery with people. Like if someone comes in and says, I want to be more emotionally resilient, when you go in and the doctor gives you stitches, it's going to hurt probably, even if you have some Novocaine, um, it's going to hurt. And a good therapist is going to probably go to places about yourself that 
you don't like. There's your shadow. And yeah. you have to get through those things to be more resilient. And so I think a lot of companies um, try to take that on. And what it should be more like is, I think Bezos said something like, we have these 10 Amazon principles and there's people that come here who are like, oh my gosh, I love being at Amazon. And there's people that come here and go, this is not for me. And that's why those were designed. You should feel out of place at a company and it's your job if you're not the right person. And it's your job as the founders to know what are the things that made you successful? Like it's very different if you're monday.com building spreadsheets than if you're like a military industrial startup whose technology is is people are depending on it from a, a living perspective. It's probably a different group of people that you need to innovate both of those things. And there's it's not good or bad or right or wrong. It's just what's the team I need to take um, to take us to where we want to go to. Yeah, yeah, well said. Joe, this has just been a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could go on and on and on, but I do know at the time and I need to let you go here in just a minute. Uh, as we wrap things up for today, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience how they can connect with you, find out more about your work, your team, and then give us the final word on the topic for today. Yeah, um, so you can go to solston.io uh, to to connect with uh, our company or um, if you go to wellbeing.solston.io, we actually have a free uh, assessment that we put out. It was during COVID, but it's actually for emotional resilience. So you can take it, see your data. Um, we don't collect any data from that. It's just it's just out there for people to see. So that's kind of fun. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, my email is joe at solston.io if you want to plug it in um, and add me or follow. And yeah, maybe just final thoughts for the day is, you know, given the focus on, on failure and emotional resilience, I think if you start with the emotional resilience piece, everything else follows. So, you know, the Harvard Business Review article that we wrote that touches on on psychological safety and some of that um, psychological safety. And I think maybe this is for everyone listening. An important note is it's the outcome of resilient teams. So that's when we look at all the studies from Google and what we saw there, the underpinning of that is it's a group of resilient people and that's what makes everybody feel safe. So focus on resilience and psychological safety follows. Wonderful. Yep. Wonderful. Joe, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Joe and his team can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe. Now you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We hope you stay healthy and safe and please join us again soon.